0: The problem is going, what are the most important things and what are the best things to do? And being willing to give up good opportunities for the best opportunities. And I think that has been a process for me, but that's also been a process for me to instill into the team to help the team understand this and be able to influence them. So strategically, we're moving, singing from the same songbook, moving in the right sort of direction.
1: From the University of Melbourne, this is Expert Hack, a show about the changing world of work and how industry experts are finding clever solutions to tricky problems. I'm Ali Moore. Today, you'll hear why some of the best entrepreneurs say no to opportunities and how being selective can help you focus on what matters. Gay Alcorn is speaking with founder of Red Balloon, Shark Tank's Naomi Simpson, and Ivan Lim, CEO and co-founder of designer furniture company Brosser. Gay began the conversation by asking Ivan what distinguishes an entrepreneur from a regular business owner.
0: There's a lot of problems in this world, right? And there's um, there's different sort of social issues. And I think entrepreneurs are the innovative problem solvers who go out there and figure out how do we solve these problems. But they're looking for repeatable, scalable ways in order to make the maximum amount of impact. And that's a constant journey of problem solving and testing new things out, testing assumptions and finding solutions. So it's it's a continuous sort of journey. It's a mindset, but um, it's it's very different from just being a small business sort of owner, which of which there is nothing wrong.
2: Well, let's go back to when you both began as as entrepreneurs. Uh, Was there a moment or an event where you thought, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to take this risk, I'm going to be an entrepreneur? What what happened in both your cases? It started when I was really young. I mean, I, I grew
0: up in a business family. And so we sat around the, uh, the dinner table. And I kid you not, I mean, um, my mother, who's a business person, would sit around the table, and we were like 10 or 11. And it would be, so who has a $100,000 business idea, and who's going to buy a house first? It wasn't like, how was soccer practice, or how was drama practice? So you know, I, I, I kind of grew up in this environment where being a business owner was somewhat expected of you from the very beginning. Um, but we started Brossa really because I bought my own place here in Melbourne, and I brought my mom around. And the business my mom is in is in property and interior design. And so she went, Ivan, I love you. You're not allowed to go to IKEA and I went, Oh gosh, what does this mean? Right. And so ended up going down to Church Street, which is where all the all the design furniture stores are, and one weekend became four weekends of all these showrooms and all these salespeople. I thought if I've graduated from Ikea and I don't want that same sofa that all my friends have, but I don't want to spend fifteen twenty thousand dollars 20000 on a designer sofa that looks beautiful, where do I go in this dearth of opportunity? And realized that there was a real opportunity to bring accessible designer pieces in a painless fashion to customers, right? And so that's where we decided we could meld the best of furniture with the best of technology to make that a really seamless process, yeah. You know?
3: Yeah, my journey to entrepreneurship was actually very, very different. In fact, I always saw my, go- my job as a, as a job as that I was going to be a corporate girl. You know, when I graduated from the University of Melbourne, you know, off I went on my career journey and joined big corporations, IBM and KPMG and Ansett, which was an airline. <laughs> uh, very long time ago. Uh, you know, and so I always thought myself of that. And it wasn't until I had children that I wanted a different sort of a life. I wanted to be available for my children but also keep working and keep using my grey matter. And so I was looking for something else. So I actually became a freelance marketer, and this was last century. And it was actually really difficult to find clients, and it was either feast or famine. So what the problem that I saw was that as a freelance marketer, you couldn't scale a business. Everybody either wanted to be with you. It was fee-for-service. If you didn't want to work, you couldn't go on holidays. And so I thought, what is another way of delivering marketing to small businesses who desperately need it but can't afford it. So that's where the whole notion of aggregating an industry came from and giving it a brand. Um, And instead of Pay, you know, paying fee for service for hours served. It was like, no, I will just deliver you customers and you give me a clip of the ticket. So people think as oh, Red Balloon. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful gifting solution, amazing experiences, but it's actually a marketing company. And all we do is deliver customers, like
2: 3.8 million customers to other small businesses. That's what we do. You've both moved on from your beginnings, but what is it like now? Do you get people asking for advice? It's such
3: responsibility when people see that you notionally as successful, then they think you're going to understand every business, which you don't. And so I literally have people coming up to me in the street, my, like my kids get pitched and their friends are saying, ask your mum what she thinks of this idea. And it's such a responsibility. So I had, to, I had to be responsible about that. So I wrote the, are you made to be an entrepreneur? Because it's a very emotional journey of which most people don't talk about. Um, are you meant to be a leader? Are you a business owner or do you want to license whatever you've just – and then I talk about cash. What's it like to be poor? You know, to have all the idea, all your money in the business. I remember Adrian Giles, who was on the rich list, didn't have two cents to rub together, but his business was valued at X because, of course, we put everything into our businesses. I talk about that because it's very important that people make powerful choices. They don't just fall into entrepreneurship, especially with this notion that it's going to be interesting and exciting. It is a long, hard journey. It really, really is. And exits are 1% of what happens in entrepreneurship.
0: Naomi Naomi hits the nail on the head. I think um, if if there was something that I tell entrepreneurs is you need grit, um, you know, there's an amazing book written by Angela Duckworth um, about this concept of grip, of intentional practice or working through really difficult things, and, and that might be one of the key indicators of success. And so um, Naomi's right, like it's an incredibly emotional journey. Like um, you know, even when I, I go out and do different things, people are like, Oh, Ivan, it must be exciting running your own business. And I'm like, I know I have like ten issues sitting in my inbox right now that I need to attend to, and it's like if I don't put out that fire, this thing will happen, and this thing will happen. But you know, if if you're very mission-oriented and you believe in what you wanna do. And and you're driven by that and you enjoy that process. That's going to help you get further. So I think, you know, people need to, one, have that tenacity, but to really build something that they, they believe in and that they want to dedicate their time to, right? Because I think there are easier ways to make money, honestly. That's my opinion. And easier getting, ways to make money. And getting
2: a job is one yeah. of them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that's right? They're, they're way, <laughs> way, way easier. Less stressful. Better for your family, better for your friends, and so on.
2: Well, then why, why do it both of you?
0: Yeah, well, because I think entrepreneurs are just wired very differently. Like, they just naturally just very kind of always working on, on, on new things.
3: And if it wasn't, this would be something else. Like when I worked inside corporate, I was a pain in the neck. Like I was never a very good employee because I always kept asking why. Well, why do we do it that way? That doesn't make any sense. Why don't we need to do it this way? And I was deeply curious. And so therefore, in some ways, it was a natural progression for me to be an entrepreneur. Working inside corporates for me was absolutely constraining because I couldn't understand why they did it that way. And also, especially the Bigger businesses, how the lack of customer focus. But shouldn't we talk to the customers? Couldn't we talk to the customers? And they were like, no, 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 well, the unions want to do it this way. And I did work for ANSA. Oh, the unions want to do it this way. And I said, yeah, but, but the customers are the ones that are important. And, they, and you know, it's like you can worry pretty little head about something else. So I was an agitator always. So actually
2: it made sense for me with my personality to have my own show. So can entrepreneurship be taught? Then, or, I mean, what, what's the role of universities or sort of training in this, or is it, is it very much an instinct? Can you, is, is there something you can be taught with it? Nature versus nurture.
3: <laughs> oh, look, I would argue that the role of the university or the role of education is to give the foundations, and with the foundations of business, but you cannot teach somebody to have a crack. They either feel it or they don't feel it, and, and entrepreneurship is energy. But I see too many businesses, particularly those coming on Shark Tank, and interesting enough, sitting um, on the board of the uh, Faculty of um, Business and Economics. And they said, how many of those Shark Tank businesses have got a business degree? I said, zero. And therefore, I'm really working hard with them to understand the fundamentals. So I think the role for education is materially important if you ever want to scale your business. And the number of people that I have seen who go into business who don't even understand the fundamentals of what is cash flow forecast? What do you mean? It says I've made a profit. Why haven't I got any cash? And they don't understand those fundamentals. And I also think, so there's a lot of kind of modelling and understanding the commercial acumen that is absolutely required through education. I think that that's uh, paramount in the role, but in terms of the energy, the energy usually comes from the problem that's being solved. Like, if you really see this as your calling, you can't stop it. You can't stop it, but that can't be taught.
0: Yeah, you get agitated every time you see it, and you just say, that is so annoying. Like, that is really, really annoying, and you just think about it all the time. It's almost like something that hounds you, and you can't escape it. And I th- Naomi's right. It's, 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 it's this sort of energy. So I agree. Like, I think education plays a part part in, in giving you a lot of the tools and, and the basic foundations that you need, but it doesn't take you all the way there. It's an important part, but it's not everything. And there are certain traits in in an entrepreneur which I don't think you're necessarily born with per se. I think it can be nurtured over time, but you need those traits, right? Like you, you not it's not because you walk into a, a lecture and you and you go through a certain course and a unit and you pass that means that okay cool, you're qualified to be an entrepreneur because it's that's just not how it happens
3: i also think it's who you hang out with mm. so you know you, you growing up in your family it was that was how business my parents both in businesses, uh, my mother worked for Lindsay Catmull, who's one of Australia's great entrepreneurs, and my father had his own business. So, seeing possibility of what entrepreneurship looks like, I think is really important as well. So, part of the role of university when it comes to education is like-minded people hanging out and creating networks. So, if I look back to my university days, very long time <laughs> ago, but those people are still my friends. Mm. Those people are my networks. Those people are my go-to. So equally important of the the education program is the networks you create. And you never know if that person's going to end up an investment banker, that person's going to end up a senior partner in a law firm or an accounting firm, and you've got your networks. And I think that that is a very, very important role that universities play, the cohort that you create. And it is a concern that I have in working with the university is a lot of people come to university and don't necessarily connect. They don't actually build a cohort around them. And to me, that is a massive missing, you know, because they can actually do a lot of the program online.
2: And you've been involved, Ivan, with the Melbourne University Accelerator Program. What did you get out of that? How did that help? I think, look, the Accelerator Program is helpful. I mean, what it
0: is is a six month program. The university decides to invest a small amount of money into promising sort of uh, startups that have a potential to grow. And they provide mentorship, they provide a working space. But I think it is very much this sort of cohort effect, which is is you surround yourself in an environment, you immerse yourself in an environment where everyone's pursuing a similar sort of goal, right? Which is to build a repeatable, scalable business out of something that's temporary right now, unless you find this repeatable, scalable business model. And so I think what you get out of it is a lot of great connections. You get a community of people who have all this learning, who are willing to share and support you. And I think that's one of the great things about the startup community um, that's growing in Australia is that it is a very generous community. Uh, It's a community that spends a lot of time giving back. And and I personally feel the responsibility um, as a founder to be able to give back because I think the ecosystem only grows if we're all in it together. And there are many different parts of the ecosystem, whether that's funding, whether it's great entrepreneurs, whether it's talent, but we all need to be able to contribute to that because the longer-term growth of the ecosystem means a healthier, viable industry for all of us, right, in order to build things.
3: And it is the backbone and growth of our country, that's where the growth comes from. That's where employment's coming from. So the ecosystem is very, very important and not something that was around when I started my business because it was such a long time ago. And I think if there's one thing I note is that really there is a lot of generosity in the startup community.
2: So this is also important for Australia in its future. I was just interested, Naomi, um, in... Has government got a role? Have we got the policy setting rights to help? or is it is it just get out of the way really for governments to let you let you go on with it? How do we, how do we compare with what other countries are doing in this area?
3: Countries is lots of countries. Some are doing it well, some are not doing it well. So I would say Israel is doing it incredibly well. Um, I think that we're neither in nor out when it comes to our government. They put lip service to it on occasions. But, uh, you know, on the whole, most founders that I know are successful, despite the uh, environment in which we operate. I just don't think that we've really done it well in terms of, you know, like, what do they just do with that four, five, seven feature? I mean, really? You know, I had – so we are always looking for tech developers. More than, you know, a third of our workforce are either developers, UX designers, testers, QA, all of these people. They're almost impossible to find and terribly expensive. Some people choose to come to Australia for a lifestyle. It has always been a great way for us to grow our business uh, and grow the economy because we're paying people, they're paying their taxes – And then they go and spend money in our economy.
0: Well, I echo Naomi, right? Because I myself am an immigrant. You know, I I was born in the UK, but I grew up in a country called Brunei. And then I moved here when I was probably 17 or 18. So I've been here for 15 or so years or whatever it is. And... and the the reality is that immigration is an important part um, of developing any economy. I think when you look at the really successful ecosystems out there in the world, in Silicon Valley, some of the most successful CEOs of some of the most highly valued companies are immigrants, right? And they came in, and immigrants are hungry. They they're innovative. They look for new ways in order to create a better life for themselves. And I think you know it's important to recognize that. Um, and coming as a, as a person myself, you know, living half my life outside of home. It's not necessarily a threat. I think there's a lot of opportunity that comes from um, great people with great skills coming into an economy wanting to contribute uh, and build up the, the local economy here. So I totally agree. Like We we struggle for talent. One of the hardest things for any startup is finding great, great talent. And so it's, it's not just going to be solved by immigration. It's also an investment into our educational institutions to make sure that we have the most qualified people in order to build this new knowledge economy. But An important element is bringing in great talent into the economy.
2: I think you have quite a high public profile. I just was interested in in this era of social media era of um, branding everything. How important is that, being an influencer uh, as part of your business?
0: I'll let Naomi take this one. I mean, I think she's far more of an influencer than I am. (laughs)
3: Look, it actually comes back to the very, very early days of Red Balloon when somebody called me and they said, I'm on your website, I'm about to make a purchase. How do I know you're real? I said, Well, of course, I'm a real. I'm the CEO. And she said, Well, how do I know you're not the janitor? Well, of course, I was working from home and I was the janitor as well as the (laughs) CEO. So, but what I realized in that moment is I needed to build trust. I needed to build trust for what I stood for because people were spending their hard earned cash on the hope that, you know, the, the jet boat ride or whatever was going to be there down the track. So I needed to build trust, the person behind the brand. And it's actually, as a marketer, it's the kind of the easier way to go when you have no money to build relationships and so. Forth, but I launched Red Balloon way before social media. So, the way that I did it was I went to networking events and I did speaking engagements and I just met people to build trust, and and that's why I started doing it. But as it came further on, it became increasingly important to be a role model for others. And when I was asked to do the TV show um, Shark Tank, I said to them, I said, I'm only going to, I won't be a token female. I said, unless there is another woman. And it's very, very important because, and having both Janine and I means, and we never agree on anything. And I think that's really important because we're not, Um, just saying, oh, half of our community, which is women, they all think that. Oh, that's a girl's business, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things I love about Steve Baxter, not that I said that out loud because we (laughs) clearly fight like (laughs) children the whole time. So I'm getting onto Twitter right now. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say this. But he doesn't see gender when he does his investments, nor is that a girl's uh, business. And he uh, invested in um, a photographic business when uh, the founder was seven months pregnant. And the only question he said is, you know, Do you believe in the future of your business and the role you're going to play in it? She said, "Absolutely," and that was all that was important to him. And I think, so I think that that's really important when we can take gender out of the conversation. And I only get that we only get um, gender balance when um, I get to lead men as well as women. And that, for me, is is what I'm pushing for. But if I'm not prepared to stand on a stage sit on a set and be that for others then I can't say well why haven't we got balanced voice because I, I didn't
2: stand up is gender still a discussion of most entrepreneurs men is, it, is it a discussion within people who are entrepreneurs it depends where you look Silicon Valley is a disgrace
3: it is an absolute disgrace and also how they treat their female founders. I don't think that's the circumstance in Australia because we also have um, far more support and infrastructure uh, to support both genders here in Australia. And I think the other thing is that we know that your market is at least 50% women. Uh, way more than 50%. <laughs> so if you've not got the right talent on your team that represents your audience, you've got a really missing conversation.
0: Still a big issue. I mean, obviously, I think it's really important. I grew up in a family of very strong women, so it astounds me how there can be such gender biases. Um, So I think definitely Australia is... Doing better in Silicon Valley, but I think there's a lot more that can be done. Uh, and the fact that it's still something that needs to be emphasized show that it's it's a problem because this shouldn't be this shouldn't be something that we're having to make a big fuss about. It should be something that you know people shouldn't see gender and kind of go well female, male, and the discrepancies between the two. Um, in terms of like my own personal um, profile, I think. You know, I think one, from a business perspective, similar to to Naomi, I think trust is important, but also for hiring talent. I think we we live in 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 an economy right now where millennials move jobs very, very often. Uh, You know, if you get them for two years, you're lucky. Uh, And so, you know, I think people are really very mission driven. They want to work and contribute in a business or an organization where they're making something meaningful. Being In the public and and being influenced, I think, is a big part of us attracting talent because, you know, you you go into a business not so much for what the business does, but also for the people that you're working with. And I think that's really, really important. And I think also from a very personal level as well, I really do believe in building a knowledge economy and and what we're doing in the future here in Australia. And I think uh, if I can lend a voice in order to be a considered uh, opinion around how we go about building the future of Australia's economy, I think that's really important as well.
2: So, what's the one biggest challenge facing your business now, Ivan?
0: Scaling. Scaling is is very, very challenging. Uh, I remember when when uh, Naomi and I first exchanged emails, she she um, she mentioned Vern Harnish and, and scale up, which we spent a lot of time looking through. And an amazing sort of like methodology around how do you scale a business, right? Because it's it's one thing to kind of get it from oh, you've got some initial sort of customers and things are exciting, but taking a business from you know that sort of small stage into a really big business is a very different mindset, a very different set of skills, and a lot of rigor and discipline and focus. Focus is incredibly important. I think um, being entrepreneurs ourselves is we have no lack of good ideas. We don't have a problem finding good ideas. Man, there's an idea a minute, right? Like you have lunch and you've got like a whole list. The problem is going, what are the most important things and what are the best things to do? And being willing to give up good opportunities for the best opportunities. I think that has been a process for me, but that's also been a process for me to instill into the team to help the team understand this and be able to influence them. So strategically, we're moving, singing from the same songbook, moving in the right sort of direction, right? That's my biggest challenge right now.
3: It's actually, Vern says, uh, Vern Harnish says, it's what you say no to, which will make you successful, because there's no shortage of opportunities and ideas. And that's why for us in strategy, we have to have just our three pillars. And if it doesn't fall within one of those pillars, we're not doing it, because it is about focus, but it is also the ability to execute well. And if you don't
2: execute well, you will never scale your business. Naomi, you've restructured and bought into an artificial intelligence product from Israel to help your business. Why? Look, you know,
3: we always want more customers. So the reason for bringing in Albert AI was because the cost to acquire a customer has skyrocketed skyrocketed, and it's unsustainable. So whereby, you know, one used to spend money with Fairfax and News or the networks, and then now it all goes to Google and Facebook. Um, So when I started playing with AdWords a long time ago, 2003, when it first launched, it cost us $0.05 to get a customer. That went up to $50 We cannot make money. It's not scalable. So therefore, we had to say, well, how can we do it better? And with lots of people, lots of experts, very expensive, managed to get it down to $28. That's still unsustainable because my cost to serve is still so great. So then we said there has to be another way, and that's why we we found Albert AI in Israel, um, out of the um, military intelligence there. Um, they, and it's been around since twenty ten, fine tuning this product. And you know, the first month we put it in, I think we got an acquisition down to sixteen dollars. Then it went down to twelve, and last time I looked, at seven dollars. I've got an absolutely sustainable business that I can then scale on other businesses if I can find customers that cheap. So you know, marketing is so not about the idea anymore. In fact, very very hard to get cut through. It's about living in your customers' shoes, um, but knowing where they hang out and how they want to engage with you. And that is a relentless task, and they shift like the sand.
2: So is it even possible to, to look ahead 10 years' time and say, what are the skills that the entrepreneur of the future are going to need? I mean, obviously, they'll still need the passion, they'll still need the drive and the risk mindset, but is it, it, are things changing so quickly, it's almost impossible to know what, what, what a, a different skills that might be required if we look ahead? Skills versus
3: behaviours and talents, I think, are two different things. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I look at all of the things that will completely disappear, it's all the things that are transactional or compliance-based. So, you know, at the moment, being in small business, you must be across all sorts of compliance and governance issues. You have a responsibility as a director, and often those things are the things that will undo a founder, uh, whether it's just making sure they do their GST return. Uh, whatever it is. And I have had businesses go out of business because they forgot to pay their tax yeah. and then they didn't have any cash to pay their tax. And it's very hard to raise money to pay tax. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so so I would say it's that level of compliance and governance that will just disappear. It will be almost automated. It will be absolutely transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, things to do, uh, uh, you know, they say that Watson is the cleverest lawyer on the planet and, you know, those sorts of transactions versus the negotiations. So where is it the art versus the science? And I think that that will be the Real difference, relationships is what makes an entrepreneur. How they build relationships, how they build reputation, that will remain very important in an entrepreneur's success.
0: I very much agree. I think you know we still live in a world where there's human interaction. I think there's still human sort of relationships that you need to build. And, and, and I think it's. I, I wouldn't be presumptuous to say that I know what the future will hold in ten years' time. I think there's definitely different skills that will probably be in demand, but that will shift in the ten years further from that, right? So I think. I think we live in a, in a world where things move very quickly, but we also live in a human world. And, um, you know, entrepreneurs are builders. You know, they're they're constantly looking for ways to build new things. And so having the relationships and the skill sets and so on, combining those things to build the right things will be important no matter what age we're in.
1: If you enjoyed this conversation, on our next episode we hear why one politician is calling for public policy to be based on hard evidence. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or in your favourite podcast app. Expert Hack is a podcast from the University of Melbourne where the Melbourne model is preparing students for the world beyond their degree. Learn more at unimelb.edu.au slash experthack.